Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa and we're teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. Welcome to the Curious Reader Podcast. I want to start by saying that if you like this podcast, please review us on Podbean or in your favorite podcasting app. Your likes and reviews help us out greatly and help others find our program. We really enjoy doing it and want to keep it going. So if you enjoy what we have to say, please let us know and tell your friends. You can reach us on Twitter at the Curious Reader GPL. The GPL stands for Gosstown Public Library. And guess what else, listeners? This month, the Curious Weird podcast is recording in another new location. Keep moving and moving. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So we started at the Goffstown Public Library, moved to whatever space we could find in Goffstown High School, and now I'm happy to say that our new home is at GTV Studios, located in the back of Goffstown High School. GTV operates two channels. Um, one on one, they broadcast local government and school board meetings, plus other interests to the residents and nonprofits in the town of Goffstown. And the other channel is an opportunity for residents to express their views and ideas to the community. Melissa and I look forward to recording many future episodes here. (laughs) One final word, though, before we get on to our book. Like I stated, GTV is located in the back of Goffstown High School. And while there is some soundproofing, it is quieter than the other places we've been. It is possible that a school bell or announcement might find its way into the episode as background noise. And we'll just chalk that up as bonus content. Little atmosphere. Exactly. (laughs) That That can't hurt, right? So, Melissa, besides being in our new recording location, um, there is another thing that you are super excited about. What is it? I am. This week is Banned Books Week, and we'll talk more about that a little later. All right, then let's move on to our book today. Okay, teens, what would you do if you found out your school had a list of books that were labeled prohibited media and that those books were removed from your school library overnight? What if then you found out that this had been happening for years? Think about it. Books that you loved. Books that have changed your life. Books that have entertained you, shaped you, maybe even challenged you. That is exactly what is happening in our book today. Melissa and I are exploring the book Suggested Reading by Dave Connes. My heart hurts just thinking about that. (laughs) Secretly be swept away. Where are the books? Well, our main character is a high school senior, Clara Evans, and she experiences what I just said a moment ago firsthand. Clara is a passionate reader. She helps out in the school library. She is a queso fanatic. She runs a nonprofit that sets up tiny little libraries and helps put much-needed books into the under-resourced schools around her. And because of this, she is a finalist for the prestigious Founders Scholarship offered by um, her private school's foundation. Now, Clara comes from a working class family. Uh, she goes to school among the community's elite and wealthy families. Uh, Clara refers to these classmates as the star stars. 
and Claire desperately wants this scholarship because it brings her one step closer to attending Vanderbilt after graduation. And being the passionate reader that she is, Clara finds that many of the books in the, in, um, that she loves are on this banned list. Now, none of the students even know that this is happening, and Clara only finds out because she succumbs to curiosity and reads an email that is open on the school librarian's desk. Now, obviously, this is an invasion of privacy and probably could have been one of our topics, but... (laughs) I love how you find these topics that I don't even think to explore. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't have been looking at that, but needless to say, she does, and she ends up outing herself to Mr. Uh, Kaywell. He's the, the school librarian. Uh, she says that, yeah, you know, she saw the email and, and then she starts to question how this can be happening. And she asks Mr. Kaywell if what he's going to do about it. Uh, and I know this part makes you a bit prickly, <laughs> Melissa, because Mr. Kaywell is fearful of losing his job. So he just says, you know, hey, we're going to remove the books like I've always done. <laughs> as we continue on about our themes you'll see why this is prickly from lissa um and myself too to, to be honest so um so he tells clara that maybe she could use them in her tiny little library so people will still have access to the books uh, just not the students and clara agrees but actually, she decides to run a tiny little library right out of her locker at school, calling it the Unlib, an underground library, so to speak. Soon, students are texting her, asking for the books wrapped in white paper, hidden in her locker. The book smuggling business is booming. She needs to stock more of the books and expand the operation to a few more lockers. Thank goodness she has some really good friends on her side. Clara starts thinking about getting caught. She's defying a school policy. And the fact that this could jeopardize her chances at a scholarship, uh, she starts to question exactly what she's fighting for. And then when a tragedy befalls another student, Clara starts to question whether the book she lent out played a role in that. So this book does a wonderful job of opening up the conversation about censorship and student activism. But it also does a great job of revealing that oftentimes the things that people have in common is greater than their differences, and that our own biases can cause us to misjudge and define people according to our own prejudices. So here are a few of my favorite takeaways from the book. So I loved how pretty much each chapter chapter opened with a quote from a real um, banned or challenged book. So there is a fictitious book that Clara is reading in this story, and that gives her the momentum to stand up and fight. Um, And this fictitious book um, is a challenged book within the story. And sometimes the chapters open with quotes from that made-up book, but a good amount of time the quotes are from real book titles found on the American Library Association's list of challenged or banned books. And Melissa will be telling you more about that in our three themes. Indeed. (laughs) The second thing I loved was the ease at which the story was paced. Some chapters were fast, uh, nothing more than a list of of commentary from Clara's thoughts, and they were actually pretty witty and funny and humorous. I really, really enjoyed that. And other chapters had more action that propelled the plot along. And then another thing I really loved is how the fiasco and the politics of the school opened the door for classmates to explore friendships and alliances they may not have even dreamed of before. So... 
I uh, also mentioned how Claire wrapped the books in white paper. And uh, of course, this was so that no staff member, particularly uh, Principal Walsh, could see the contraband. But also, Clara hoped that after a student read the book, that they would leave a small quote or a sentence about the impact that the book had on them, and that this would be proof that the books were beneficial. I love this idea. And actually, I think it's something I would love to try in a display of library books mm-hmm. um, in my teen area, um, so that teens you know, could take this rap book and maybe write down you know, a quote or something that impacted them. I'd also had started thinking about something called the Margin Project. Uh, these are where books are specifically set aside for writing in. Uh, you, um, you know, write your thoughts or something, or you can even draw a picture. Uh, and then the next person that checks it out gets to write comments, uh, read prior comments, and, and add on to comments. So I kind of liked that. Yeah, I love that idea. And so, teens, if you've read a book featured on our Curious Reader podcast, Melissa and I would love to know your thoughts, your curiosities, how the books impacted you. Uh, you can share that in the comments area of our podcast or even send us an email. Visit the website at thecuriousreader.podbean.com and click on Contact Us. So, Melissa... What are our themes today? Okay, so this one lined up pretty easily this month. Our three themes are banned books and censorship, the First Amendment and student rights, and panem et circenses. And I went to the Latin teacher to ask how to say that, and I think I still said it wrong, but bread and circuses. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to start with our theme one, which is banned books and censorship, Um, I'm so happy that we read this book this month and that we're discussing it during Banned Books Weeks. This has always been one of my favorite bookish days. (laughs) Many banned books are some of the best literature around, and I always like to raise awareness about censorship issues. What one person considers inappropriate may not be what someone else finds inappropriate. So true. You know, society is made up of a diverse group of people, and books are filled with content that are reflected of this diversity. Additionally, our world is complicated and and has aspects that are disturbing. And I think books help people make sense of the world we live in. Yeah, so we're going to talk about this a little bit. Stacey, as you described, suggested reading is a story about censorship and book banning. So um, we kind of did plan it for this particular month. we did. It wasn't just a coincidence. (laughs) So I want to give you a little background information about these issues. There's a long history of challenging and banning books. In fact, we believe the first banned book in the New World was Thomas Morton's New English Canaan, which was outlawed by the Puritans in 1637 for critiquing Puritan customs. Keep in mind that this is just seven years after the founding of Massachusetts. So So early on. (laughs) This is an issue that's been going on for a long time. But many historians believe that Uncle Tom's Cabin was the first book banned on a national scale. Abraham Lincoln even said that this book was one of the main catalysts of the Civil War, encouraging people to consider the evils of slavery as a social institution. Hmm. So in the modern era, September includes Banned Books Week, which was designed by the American Library Association to shed light on censorship issues and to celebrate literature and the freedom to read. This event has been around since the 1980s and was created in response to a wave of book banning in the United States. According to the Library Association, and I like this quote very, very much, I use, <laughs> I, I have it written down, I always come back to it, the freedom to read is essential to our democracy, and reading is among our greatest freedoms. 
Every silencing of a heresy, every enforcement of an orthodoxy diminishes the toughness and resilience of American society and leaves it less able to deal with controversy and difference. Intellectual freedom is essential to the preservation of a free society and a creative culture. Great quote. So just as in the 1980s, we must remember how tenuous our First Amendment rights are. In fact, I took a break from searching this episode to read the daily newspaper, and it wasn't much of a break because on the homepage of the New York Times was an article entitled, Pennsylvania School District Reverses Ban on Books by Authors of Color After Backlash from Students. That's a long title. It is. The article states, quote, the Central York School District had implemented, quote, a freeze last fall on a lengthy list of books and educational resources that focused almost entirely on titles related to people of color. The school district claimed the books on race and social justice, which the Southern Pennsylvania community hoped would help bolster the educational curriculum following George Floyd's murder and the racial justice protests of 2020 were frozen, not banned, after some parents raised concerns about the material. End quote. Um, Stacey, I'm not sure what the difference between frozen and banned was in the minds of that school board. <laughs> well, you know, it's similar to in our book, uh, the Principal Walsh, who's a character in our book, uh, corrects Mr. Kaywell, the librarian. Uh, Walsh states, um, and do call them prohibited media. Banned book is too aggressive. <laughs> so my initial reaction to that storyline uh, is that the word frozen is used to detract from the more egregious word of banning. I'm sure that the thought is that these books will not be used at this time until they can be vetted. But how long does that take? And, and who's vetting the books? And is the book still available in the school library? Or is it removed as in our story? Is the hope that it will take so long to vet, therefore people and students will just move on, forgetting that certain books are not accessible to them? Which is sad, because having a wide array of books can inspire conversation and dialogue. It can open a window into a world that we've never experienced, and possibly open a door to an aspect of history one never learned. I totally agree, and that's why I love this week so much, to to shed light on that. There's actually actually an official word for this. Books in a state of limbo like this, the ones that are being reviewed for acceptability, are called challenge books by the American Library Association. And according to the association, quote, a challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials based on the objections of a person or group. A banning is the actual removal of these materials. And our Pinterest page provides links to ban books information um, so those who want to delve deeper than we're going today can check that out. And I'm going to provide some background, but this is a fascinating topic with a lot of nuance. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. I went off on all these little rabbit trails when I was looking up stuff, too. And I was like, no, get back, get back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let me just um, say that challenges often are not made with malicious attempt. Uh, intent. Challenges are often mounted with a desire to protect protect children, including teens, from inappropriate sexual content, offensive language, or objectionable ideas. But remember, what one person considers objectionable may not be objectionable, objectionable to another. Yeah. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. Exactly. Um, so let's move to a very brief history of laws related to censorship in modern America. I don't want to bore you, but I do want to, <laughs> to give you some context. So in 1873, so pretty early, hmm. a law was enact enacted that made it illegal to allow, quote, obscene, lewd or lascivious material to travel through the mail. 
Today, the use of laws about sending things through the U.S. mail often relates to cases of fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, Back then, the idea that certain things could not be sent through the mail was used to ban many books. If you can't ship your items to people in stores, you can't sell them, and therefore people can't read them. So remember, they didn't have UPS or FedEx back then, so it was (laughs) all U.S. mail. Then in 1933, in a case called the United States versus one book called Ulysses, um, they overturned a ban on the book that had been in effect since 1922. The ban disallowed the James Joyce book to enter into the country. Mm. The U.S. District Court for Southern New York ruled that Joyce had honestly portrayed the life of middle-class life in Dublin in 1904. The judge said that people may not like the author's technique of portraying that society, but the book is a masterpiece and that it constructs constructs an accurate view of a particular society and therefore cannot be banned. In 1957, in a case called Roth versus the United States, they set out to define what obscenity really meant. Um, I often go back to my my students when they're they're writing papers and they use a word like that and say, "Okay, what 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 does that mean?" Right. Um, yeah. So as time goes on with these laws, we we try to um, provide more detail so that people understand better and yeah. don't just assume that everybody understands things in the same way. Um, so in a six to three decision written by Justice William J. Brennan Jr., the court held that obscenity was not within the area of constitutionally protected speech or press. The court noted that the First Amendment was not intended to protect every utterance or form of expression, such as materials that were, quote, utterly without redeeming social importance. <laughs> Justice Brennan stated that this could be determined by the average person. However, as I stated early in this podcast, what one person finds objectionable, another may not. Yeah, that that seems just way too subjective to me. Right. Yeah. Mm, Right. Okay. So then in 1982, I think Brennan realized the issue when uh, came before him and the rest of the Supreme Court, the case of Island Trees School District versus uh, Pico. Um, in this decision, Brennan fine-tuned or perhaps even reconsidered his 1957 ruling. He stated, quote, it is permissible to censor for vulgarity, but, uh, he said, our Constitution does not permit the official suppression of ideas. If the school board members intended by their removal decision to suppress mm. ideas just because they disagree with them, the banning is not permissible. He also stated that if there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. And that's what we're going with today. That's what our society goes with. So in my career, um, I've supported many programs during Banned Books Week. In my long career... (laughs) (laughs) We currently have a display at Goffstown High School that shows the breadth of classical works that have been banned, um, uh, literature that has been positively reviewed, like popular novels today, mm-hmm. um, things that have ban- been banned throughout the decades. Um, but one of my favorite programs was one I conducted several times when I worked as a public librarian. Uh, members of my teen book club stood in Town Square in Milford, New Hampshire, and we read passages from the kids' favorite band books. We had lots of people come to listen, some of whom were not happy with the passages the kids picked. 
However, those who attended asked very respectful questions. And I think that's the power of books. Um, They challenged the teens to think about the value of the written word and the responsibility we had in considering it through deep and thoughtful discussions. Which would not take place if we just shut down ideas. Ideas. That sounds like a great program. I I really do like that. Um, Gosstown Public Library. Of course, we also love uh, celebrating uh, this week. And so we have a display of books um, on our second floor and then also on our first floor because maybe some of you don't realize that these aren't just novels or, or you know, what you would consider uh, what teens and adults are reading. Um, Some of these books are picture books as well. Yes. So that have been challenged or banned. So we have um, a display down in our children's area as well. So let's move on to theme two, which is the First Amendment and student rights. And this was kind of fun to dig into. And I think our teens will be especially interested in this. Um, Mm -hmm. In our book, rather than focusing on the Trees School District case and book banning specifically, the author chose to include a case that goes directly to the heart of students' rights. In Suggested Reading, which is our book, in reaction to the banning of books at the school, English Honors Lit Teacher Ms. Croft discusses the Supreme Court case Tinker versus Des Moines. And we talk about this um, as educators mm-hmm. uh, in when we're trained as teachers at school. Um, as a chapter opens, Ms. Cross tells a student to remove a bracelet that says, not your forefather's equality, which the student explains is in support of equal rights. Croft states, we don't want to protest social issues on school grounds. The, the kid is kind of horrified. Like, yeah. uh, oh, okay. And hands over the bracelet without question. Their teacher asks, who knows what Tinker versus Des Moines was? All of a sudden in a nice voice, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and she explains how in 1965, students who wore black armbands to protest the Vietnam conflict were disciplined. The case went to the Supreme Court, where it was found that students have the right to protest. Handing the bracelet back to the student from whom she took it, Ms. Croft states, quote, next time, question, push back, don't just accept things. Time doesn't change things. Humans change things. Time adapts. Mm. So the Supreme Court ruled, this is a huge case, in 1969, that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And I'm going to read right from the ACLU's website about students' rights as they relate to the First Amendment as they try to clarify this court case. So the ACLU says you have the right to speak out, hand out flyers and petitions, and wear expressive clothing in school as long as you don't disrupt the functioning of the school or violate school policies that don't hinge on the message expressed. What counts as disruptive will vary by context, but a school disagreeing with your position or thinking your speech is controversial or in bad taste is not enough to qualify. Schools can have rules that have nothing to do with the message expressed, like dress codes. So, for example, a school can prohibit you from wearing hats because that rule is not based on what the hats say. But it can't prohibit you from wearing only pink pussycat hats or pro NRA hats, (laughs) for example. Okay. Outside of school, you enjoy essentially the same rights to protest and speak out as anyone else. This means you're likely to be most protected if you organize protest and advocate for your views off campus and outside of school hours as a, as a young adult or a child. You have the right to speak your mind on social media and your school cannot punish you for content you post off campus and outside of school hours that does not relate to school. 
So beyond First Amendment rights, I want young people to understand that they're protected by the Constitution, just as adults are, both in and out of school. However, there are some differences when we are talking about minors, and the law expects minors to be under the guidance of adults in schools, um, and schools act in something that's called in loco parentis, which means in place of the parent when children are attending school. So during the school day, the school staff share responsibility with parents for their children. And this doctrine was first outlined back in England in 1769. So it has tr- been tr- uh, it has trickled down throughout our laws, and it's it's written into all the different state laws mm. now. So actually, in, in the book, uh, Principal Walsh uh, tells Clara that the school has authority to act, act as legal guardians for the students. And so I'm going to quote right from the book here on page 89. Um, so it says, Clara, your responsibility as a student is to abide by the wisdom of leadership and the rules we've outlined in the student handbook, which you agreed to follow upon signing your... Um, student contract. The school has the right, and not only that, but the obligation and the God-given honor to act as legal guardians for students to ensure their well-being and personal growth. As covered in the Constitution, as outlined in the law of in loco loco parentis, parentis. I can't do Latin either. Otherwise known as in place of a parent, your argument does not stand here. So, Principal Walsh also said that students agree to this agreement when they sign their student contract. And this made me wonder if private schools can get away with maybe uh, some things that public schools can't get get away with. Um, it is mentioned many times within this book. They're a private school. We can do, you know, they can do what they want. Um, and that may be a conversation for another time, another topic, another theme, but it was something I was curious about. Yeah, it's also interesting to think about how this author set up the book and mm. maybe made it a private school so it fit with what, yeah, what she wanted to mm-hmm. say. That's I, I love thinking about the author's process, too. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, I want to end with this, all this legal stuff, and I hope it's been interesting to people and, and students understand their rights better. But uh, the 20th century ideas behind children's rights were outlined in a 2000 U.S. Supreme Court case called Troxel versus Granville. It found that parents and guardians basically have control over their kids with the expectation that the parent would provide food, shelter, etc., However, an article titled Conceptualizing Legal Childhood in the 21st Century states that that relatively simple framework in which parents had primary authority over the children, subject to limited state oversight, has broken down over the Mm. past few decades. Um, Which is interesting because I've only been working in a school for about nine years Mm -hmm. and um, I keep thinking it's not the way it was when I was a kid because <laughs> uh, it, yep. it really has changed a lot. So once upon a time, parents could make most decisions about their children with some government oversight, as I stated before, um, related to things such as education, child labor, abuse and justice. But the article states that children in this regime were largely invisible as legal persons, presumed to be vulnerable, dependent and incapable of making self-regarding decisions. So my students, does that sound like you? I don't think so. (laughs) Beginning in the 1960s, the courts and those who wrote laws started giving children more adult rights, and this made things more confusing. The rethinking of the rights of children has snowballed Mm. in the 21st century thanks to court cases and advocacy groups. Interesting. 
I actually really have a lot of questions about this. Um, One advocacy group argued that some of the laws we have are ageist. Um, And an organization I found called the National Youth Rights Association was arguing, for example, that it was unfair that young adults couldn't hold some offices until they reached the age of 30. But that's actually written into the Constitution. You can't be president until 35. So I'm very interested to see how ideas about the rights of young people evolve. And um, for Ms. Murchison's class out there, the 12th grade students who are looking for topics right now for their research papers, this could be a good one. (laughs) See, get a listen to our podcast because I think we had another one where we gave some good research um, topics too. Yeah, there you go. Teens, listen. You can always find that (laughs) So um, we're going to move on to theme three now, and I'm going to try to say this again. Panem et circenses, or bread and circuses. So early in the book, Clara refers to Panem et circenses, or bread and circuses, and then continually uses it throughout the story to remind us of the control school administration and parents have over students. She learns how the social constructs of haves and have-nots help distract those involved from... um, Uh, It distracts them from reality, pitting people against each other instead of against an unjust system. Mm -hmm. This was the case with the quesos versus the star stars. Um, This phrase was first coined, uh, this Latin phrase, by the Roman uh, called Juvenal in his poem Satire X, which was written in the 2nd century AD. He basically stated that the government can do whatever it wants to the people as long as they keep them fed and entertained. Mm -hmm. People would put up with this. So Clara thinks people would rather keep their heads down and disregard unpleasantness around them instead of fighting against the system. In fact, she struggles throughout the book against her own desire to graduate, get a scholarship, and go to the college of her choice, Vanderbilt, versus standing up for what she thinks Mm -hmm. is right. In an article on the topic, Dr. Linda Ellis explains that the phrase bread and circus describes well how ancient Rome placated its citizens with free food and entertainment in a city that was critically overpopulated, often hungry and angry at the politicians. To keep the people satisfied and unquestioning of the government, emperors provided free bread and daily entertainment. But there was no generosity here. It was simply pragmatic to maintain their political and military power structure across the three continents. So on page 255 of our book, Clara gives us her take on finding her own happiness with full understanding of the evils of society. She doesn't want to put her head in the sand. She says, childhood innocence can't stay forever, and I don't think it should. All these people act like it's the highest form of happiness, but it's all based on ignorance. Kids are happy because they're ignorant of the world, which is good for kids. But for us, she means it for teens, isn't it so much more powerful to choose happiness knowing what the world truly is, to fight for it, to make our joy in the face of it all? So the concept of bread and circuses has most famously um, and most recently appeared in the Hunger Mm -hmm. Games trilogy. Author Suzanne Collins names her newly reformed Northern American nation Panem, which means bread, and highlights how the Hunger Games, the circuses, serve to placate the struggling masses. Yeah, speaking of of Hunger Games real quick, teens, you may be interested to know that the first book was challenged in 2010 for being sexually explicit, unsuited to age group and violence. And as the series continued, more challenges and more reasons were added in 2011-2014. Some of these reasons were that it was anti-ethnic, anti-family, insensitivity, offensive language, a 
cult and satanic and um, religious viewpoint. And yet, um, can't one see that through the book, Collins is actually teaching about severe poverty and how starvation and oppression affect war-torn countries. You know, war is violent. Starvation is real, and teens have experienced it. Stuffing these books aside doesn't take away the ills of the world. Teens hear language. Teens are talking about sex. They they know about abuse and fractured families happen. And quite frankly, pretending like readers can't handle these topics does a disservice to those trying to relate to the world. So reading about well-written and fleshed-out characters help teens navigate thorny issues and contemplate tough situations like bullying, sexuality, racism, violence, self-esteem, and mental health. And this probably belonged up in the banned books area, but because we talked, we said Hunger Games, it made me think of it. And I think it does speak a bit to what Clara's thoughts are about having um, teens having more power navigating the world when they know the reality of it, when they can see it. Yeah, thanks for that, Stacey. I think the banning of Hunger Games is really important to point out. Um, and I toyed with the idea of making book banning a one big theme today because it's so prevalent. It's such mm-hmm. a big issue. Um, and it is certainly worth bringing it up throughout this episode. So everywhere you turn, there's censorship. And that relates strongly to our talk about bread and circuses. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to be distracted by other things and to ignore this important issue. Very true. In reality, the idea of bread and circuses is deeply entwined with our modern institutions, despite their ancient origins. We use the idea of bread and circuses today when we are describing people distracted from the real problems of the day, just like censorship. Um, But here's another example. In the idea of bread and circuses, um, the government or the wealthy are often accused of trying to distract those not in power to get across their own agendas. And I just want you to think about this, teens, when you are holding your phones Um, Some say that businesses on the internet give us apps that take our information and sell it for profit. But if we are entertained, we might happily relinquish relinquish those privacy rights. It's all bread and circuses. The idea was cleverly used by Dave Connors to illustrate how even schools and students are subject to distractions that keep us from thinking too hard about our most important issues. Mm, Very true. Very true. This is great stuff, Melissa. Um, But I guess we are going to begin to wrap it up. So thank you all for listening to The Curious Reader today. The Curious Reader podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even for free on audible.com. So download an episode or two or three. And remember, liking and subscribing helps others discover this podcast. So please, please, please click that little heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading. Yes. Melissa and I will be back next month uh, with a contemporary romance that sounds a bit like the opening of a fairy tale. Um, Rika lives in the beautiful kingdom of Los Angeles, and she's an orphan with two bossy cousins. She works a demanding job in the family business, and she can't stop having this nagging feeling that she doesn't quite belong. Note there is no glass slipper awaiting to be fitted to just the right foot, but clues start to reveal that Rika's mother may be alive, and she just may be a Hollywood movie star. Rika, along with a cute actor by her side, set out on a madcap quest in search of the truth and maybe a happy ending. But fairy tales are fiction, and the real world isn't so kind. Rika knows she's setting herself up for a disappointment, because happy endings don't happen to girls like her. Should she walk away before she gets in even deeper, or let herself be swept away? 
So join us as we discuss from Little Tokyo with Love by Sarah Kuhn. And I want to, we want to thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.